after a six-month hiatus. Woohoo, because I was uh, trying to be an adult and it was difficult. But now it's me and Allie and my friend Mill is joining us. And Mill and I, just like most of my friends, met on Instagram and connected as uh, similar viewpointed psychiatry residents. And now we're similar viewpointed (laughs) psychiatry attendings. So today, the topic that we are going to be discussing is something that I think if you're in mental health, you get a lot of questions about all the time. And it's like, I mean, the most basic question is like, how do I find a therapist? Um, But oftentimes people just don't really understand what psychotherapy is. And they might have had like one single experience with it. And then they have a whole viewpoint around that. But the goal of this episode today is to sort of go into the history of psychotherapy, all the types of psychotherapy out there that are available to you so you know a little bit more about what might be right for you, and then all the different types of psychotherapists there are, and then even more basic, like how to find a psychotherapist. So I know Mill has done better than me with prepping a little bit for this episode. So do you want to start by telling us a little bit about the history of psychotherapy? Yeah. Um, so I, I just talked about this yesterday with uh, some residents. So I will maybe kind of start with, with that um, to kind of talk about the history of psychiatry. Have we done this before? Have we talked about like history of psych and, and how we got to where we are in the universe? Not on this podcast. Um, excellent. I don't want to be like too redundant. Um, but like, I think it's important to really think about psychotherapy. It's like not a new thing and not just like starting with Freud. I mean, we've been practicing effectively what is psychotherapy since human beings have had the ability to communicate with one another. Um, you know, like when I was in med school, uh, maybe giving away some information about myself, but like, if you had like a personal problem, you could go to the rabbi, you know, that was the med school rabbi. Um, it's very obvious where I went to, to school after that, but like, you know, you, you get like good advice and, and that was, you know, basically our, our version of psychotherapy. And that was kind of where it started is you'd go to your religious leader, your shaman, your whatever, you know, spiritual leader you had and ask for advice on why, you know, your relationship was not good, why you were having some difficulties in your life and they would ascribe some treatment to you. Um, and in chatting about this, like the beginning of um, mental health descriptions at all, like 400 BC, the Indian Hindu Vedas had descriptions of like what we now understand as mental health things. Uh, and then ancient Chinese texts, 1000 uh, BC. Uh, and then like we are always so Eurocentric in our view in psychiatry. And so like I always have to give a little apology of like, you know, okay, we're going to be Eurocentric because that's the paradigm in which we were trained and like understand things. And so we start out with like Hippocrates and describing, you know, medical, medical knowledge um, and the Greeks with their philosophical underpinnings to help deal with existential distress. Um, I think that's a good place to start, you know. So like we've been, this is not a new thing. And we're just talking about a systematic way of approaching problems. But it is probably helpful to, to start with Freud because before that, we're going to talk about like bloodletting and you know, <laughs> coma therapy and just chaining people up who had problems or uh, you know our f- other favorite, uh, just repressing your problems and forgetting about them, which is... Or great. exorcisms. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah the other one. Um, and ketosis. They, they were actually sending people out 
you know, to starve because they figured out that it cured epilepsy. So oh. let's not forget about that. <laughs> yeah, and epilepsy was a psychiatric thing. Like, we treated epileptic people initially back in the days of alienists, as we were so called. Yeah. Um, if you think about it, you know, it it's the closest thing to what an exorcism or somebody needing an exorcism would look like. Uh, what is it called? Being exercised. Yeah. I, yeah, think, if, I really think that's need, If exorcised. you need to be exercised, you're demon possessed. Yeah. Possessed. That was, I think of the word possessed. Yeah. Okay. But like, you know, when you read about what possessions look like or, you know, you watch the movies actually kind of looks like a seizure. So it makes sense. Yeah, and and as has been the case, you know, as soon as things become delineated and more easily treatable, um, you guys in neurology uh, steal it from us and, and <laughs> try to treat them. <laughs> so you know, that's uh, yeah. So I mean, maybe one day you'll take all of our diagnoses and we can just call ourselves uh, behavioral neurologists. <laughs> Seems to be in vogue. Behavioral neurologists. People would have that. more respect for us if that was our title. Just gonna put Truly. it out there. <laughs> It, 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 there's nothing stopping you from using that title. Well, there is psychotherapy. That's that's why we're here. That's oh, why we're talking oh. about it, right? I mean, like, wow, that is the difference. I know that that's was very true. sneaky, right? Like, that's, we um, we're reading from a script. <laughs> I know, right? Um, sometimes, sometimes I I am accidentally clever. Um, <laughs> I. But yeah, I mean, so I think it's helpful to start with Freud. I mean the first questions and so for all the problematic things about Freud I think it's like fun to talk about Freud and every psychiatry resident or you know post psychiatry residency some people elect to become full-fledged psychoanalysts and what we call psychodynamic psychotherapy is like also you know has its roots in Freud and Mm -hmm. so um yeah, we can talk a little bit about that. I think it's a good starting place to, to start with Freud. I think so, too. And I think, like, you know, like you were saying, like, Freud gets a lot of hate. But I think we have to view everybody in, like, the context of their time period and, like, what was actually progressive for their time period. So even right. though right now Freud would be, like, canceled and tossed out the window, like, in his time period, he might have held what were, like, more progressive views. Right. Freud was a neurologist. It was. And no, I mean, I feel like we're going to talk about that theme a lot because like a lot of the really important people in psychotherapy first started as neurologists. And I feel like when you come from that background, then you walk into psychiatry and you're like, wow, this is different. Um, You're like a little bit more open to like some different ideas about things that I think is important. I don't know. I I just have I have feelings about like the contributions that neurologists have given because we'll talk about that with, with that. That's why this podcast exists, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that's the whole reason this exists. Um, but yeah, so I mean, let's talk about Freud. So Freud, you know, from Vienna, um, and started to ask some interesting questions. Um, published a book about dream analysis, and that was kind of like the first thing that any of us read is about interpreting dreams. Um, and I think it's important because, like, we didn't have drugs. Like, people think of, of psychiatrists as a stereotypical, like, pill pusher, you know? Like, that's the, the anti-psychiatry, like, bent. It's like, oh, you guys are just pushing drugs. But it's like, this is kind of a new thing for psychiatry. Like, we didn't have meds. Right. Um, we were called alienists because, like, we lived in, in rural areas where people conveniently kept psychiatric patients, like, out of sight, out of mind, you know, like 
the same way we say, like, couldn't you just take those homeless camps and put them somewhere else? Like, um, that's like, that was the mentality. And so people who were convicted enough to say, like, I want to live on site with these patients, like, all we had was talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the first asylums, if you go back to like Pinel, when he was like, guys, you have to, you have to unchain people. Um, and Pinel was, I think, like kind of led into into that. And, like you know, Philip Pinel was the guy that walked into asylums after his friend, who was a lawyer, uh, had an episode of what we now know as mania. Uh, you know, there was no treatment, ran out into the woods, unclothed, and died of exposure. Um, and I find that to be like a really poignant story because he's the one that decided after that again that he was like you know going into neurology and then decided to become a psychiatrist and and study what made people do things like that after losing his best friend um and i think you'd be hard-pressed to find a psychiatrist that doesn't have a similar story in their own life um i don't know how open we all are here about talking about that stuff oh so i quite open yeah i was actually (laughs) i haven't yet had my experience um that switched me from neurology to psychiatry but I did want to say that a more, I don't know if this is more recent or not, but if you watch the documentary on Cropsey, which uh, is about the asylum in Staten Island, um, that I think they're in the 70s, um, they did an expose piece. Um, Geraldo Rivera, I believe, he, and he was very young and... Um, they went in, and it w- there were a lot of very disturbing images of children, you know, chained up in unsanitary conditions. Um, that's that's what immediately came to mind when you started talking about that. Yeah, and that was going on since PNL, which is like, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to like actually cheat for a minute. Uh, it was like this the mid 1700s to like early 1800s. Oh my god, that's way around. that's way too long. That it means yeah. that literally nothing changed for 200 years. That they were treating people the yeah. Same way. There was yeah. a bit of a regression too, and and we we can talk about that too yeah. because it's like a lot of it had to do with economics and like cost cutting measures, and that's how drugs were introduced to the U.S. was because they they convinced people it would be cheaper, um, ever the capitalistic like motivation. But the very <laughs> beginning of it was like you know Pinel walked in there and was like unchain these people. This is ridiculous. Like you can't treat them like this because he saw his friend in those people, um, and he identified sort of you know himself in the patients. And so what did he do? He, like, I mean, they, they st- like, he stopped the like, bleeding, like, blistering, like, purging, like, all of that stuff. But, like, in the U.S., we just created more, like, sort of, you know, cruel therapies um, that we can talk about in a probably separate, like, entire hour just devoted to, like, the psychiatry uh, missteps. Yeah, ethics. Yeah. But, like, all we had was talking to people. That was it. Like, it was literally play bridge with people, play cards. You know, bridge was popular back then. I guess it was the, uh, the Fortnite of their generation. Um. <laughs> more like magic the card game magic the gathering that's a yeah. better there we go yeah. yeah magic the gathering um and uh yeah i mean so that's that's kind of where psychotherapy started and it's you know freud had a self-selected group of people he worked with and like he wasn't as interested in these like severely ill people that were alienated he was more interested in you know, people that were functional but not functional. And so that was like the worried well. And that was really the beginning of psychotherapy was like, you know, this contrast between alienists working with people with schizophrenia and learning about them and understanding what their mindset was. And then Freud digging into people that were, you know, not experiencing extreme psychosis, hallucinations, but also wondering why they had trouble. And 
I think it's important to not minimize the suffering on either end of the aisle and splitting people into the two categories we still use today, psychosis and neurosis. That is a fun line to like, to think about because we still use it. I mean, when we, we talked about an, the ep- excellent prior episode that everyone should listen to on borderline personality disorder, that was really touching. Uh, you know, like people always ask me like what borderline, like borderline of what, you know, like what am I on the border of? And we always have this conversation that's like, all right, let's kick it back to Freud. So back when like you had to have a beard to be taken seriously. Um, and a bow tie. <laughs> you, yeah, bow ties are a frequent trend actually. Yeah, I don't, did, did Freud wear a bow tie? I think he did. Absolutely. <laughs> did, yeah. I, I, I think the image of him I have in my mind is him wearing a bow tie. So did Aaron Beck, which is like, we'll talk about him later. But. And, yeah. <laughs> You were immersed in that world, though, so I feel like you get burnt out on, like, the Beck, the Beck thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to always give a disclaimer when I give my, like, history of this, like, talk, too, because, um, you know, like, what's exciting for the, its time period, again, like, viewing people in the lens of their time, now may seem sort of passe. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something got to keep in mind before I make noises at particular people's <laughs> names. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, like, like Freud talked about psychoanalysis and like, I always like, so I guess this is a good time to talk about like ego id and superego. Yeah. So Freud breaking people's understanding of what constitutes human consciousness. Um, how do you all keep that straight? How do you all keep that in mind? Because I have a really stupid way of thinking Please tell me your stupid way because I always keeps the lid on the ego. Oh, I just like I'm a Is I'm a popular it? popular culture guy. I'm I'm like not you know I don't think of myself as being that all that intelligent and and uh, analytical in my thinking. So like, who's watched the show Scrubs? I have. Okay, That's like a good most one. I feel like most of us have. Yeah, I mean I I love JD. It was actually the most medically accurate. It was out of all the yeah out of all the medical sitcoms. It also portrayed the immense human suffering of. Of being a resident really well. Really, really oh, well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. As so time, you know how like I was gonna say as time has gone on, I felt, you know, I uh, relate more to the attending, which maybe shows how like <laughs> how things have regressed. I'm like, oh man, he's so annoyed with what's his name, like J V or something. JD, or JD, 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 John Dorian. Yeah. For, and I'm like, yeah, I get that now. So I guess you know, I, maybe I think you're meant to go through the, the <laughs> stages. Like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's such a great, oh man, Winnie the Pooh psychoanalysis is great. Um, that I just got like a, a massive boost of like oxytocin just like released into my brain from that. So thank you. But okay, you sure so. sure it wasn't honey? May- <laughs> oh my God, please take that out. <laughs> I'm leaving it in, sorry. Yeah, you might have to do a craniotomy to fix that one. Um <laughs> So, yeah, you know how, like, JD has, like, that voice where he talks about, like, what he wants to do, and it's all his, like, inappropriate thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Scrubs is, like, 100% id. The id is JD's voice from Scrubs. Like, he wants to, like, hook up with his co-resident, and then, like, there's that part of him that's like, wait a second, don't do that. And, like, you know, it's often, like, there's some part of him holding himself back where, like, you probably shouldn't do this. Um, or or did wins. I say that out loud? Or he sometimes yeah. is like, did I just think that's myself or out loud? And he does that face. So that's like the id, right? The id is like the JD voice that we all have. That's like the thing that you want to do. 
it's like completely impulsive and uh i've i've never related more to a statement in my life and the guy that first told me that was is now like an infectious disease doctor like somewhere and <laughs> like so the most insightful person for freud is like has nothing to do with psychology um he was like Makes an ex navy navy seal <laughs> guy um who was yeah anyway he's like oh id like uh, jd from scrubs and it, we just like sat there like total silence and we were like that's brilliant i wish that i'd come up with that it's he should wrote, he should have he should write for first aid because I feel like all they needed to do instead of those stupid mnemonics was just put something like that in the, in the col- like in the whatever the margin, and I'd be like, oh, say less, got it. Well, isn't, isn't that weird? Because like therapy is like all about like feeling and like how to connect your feeling and like tune your yes. emotions, yeah, as an instrument. So id, JD's voice, and then like okay, so like. Ego and superego are, like, the aspects that, like, mediate, um, like, what you, what you do. So, like, the Jiminy Cricket voice is, like, on your shoulder. That would be, like, your, your superego. I remember it because super is, like, on your shoulders and Jiminy Cricket and, like, the little devil, you know, like, telling you what's right and wrong. I find that to be helpful. That's a pretty, like, widely, like, used... Um, analogy like Jiminy Cricket is a superego and then the ego is like the moderator between them that's like arguing between JD's voice and like the person sitting on your shoulder that's telling you not to do that because it's wrong yeah so it could just be the part of you that's flipping between the two like which one you're going to listen to yeah and so like I I feel like that's really handy Um, but yeah it's like just those like basal desires that you're like where did that thought come from um and it's all of that fun stuff. No, I think that's helpful because honestly, every few, every like six months, I have to look them up again because they, <laughs> they literally, I'm not going to pretend that I know all this stuff. It, like uh, my brain, it's very good at hanging on to things for a short period of time. But then if I decide that it's not too pertinent to whatever's going on in my life, it like shoves it away. And then I have to like, you know, Google it a few months later to remember. So I think this will help. Um, yeah, I, so, like, that's kind of helpful, because then I, I think, like, that part is still relevant to this day, because, like, when we think about what consciousness is, that's a lot more philosophy than it is medicine, and it's just so interesting, because, like, he was a neurologist, but he was, like, practicing what's, like, basically akin to, like, jazz improvisation in, like, medicine, where, like, you're playing the wrong notes on purpose, and he even, like, had that kind of psychotic double bookkeeping, where he was, like, I know this is all, like, total nonsense, but it makes sense, like, and one day, you know, like, science will catch up and this will all be irrelevant and like how many years is it later and like we're still not there you know like it's that's in that way it's kind of disappointing but like also i feel like there's more to it than biological reductivism and i feel like that's where psych like psychiatry is interesting because like we do have this bizarre sort of psychotic double bookkeeping where we like both believe in the biological and then also accept these sort of like you know what amounts to a sort of frou-frou concept of like subconscious and conscious and like where in neurology does that make any sense like it it doesn't really so it's about the experience of of being which is way more in like spirituality and 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 philosophy and i think the best psychiatrists have a good balance of the two and aren't too strongly in one direction or the other yeah, it feels like you're kind of like riding two sharks, like what on each foot. I don't know. That's kind of like the mental picture that mm-hmm. I have. Um, yeah. So Freud was the father of the first type of psychotherapy, which normally referred to as like 
psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, psycho whatever. <laughs> and do you want to tell us more about that or? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's basically like what happened was like World War II was a really significant part in like the development of psychiatry in the U.S., because, like, around our, our country's founding, right, like, Benjamin Rush, the signer of the Declaration of Independence, like, he worked in asylums. He was an, a quote-unquote alienist. Um, he also ordered people to, like, unchain uh, the patients. And he was influenced by a woman named Dorothea Dix who, like, went to Europe, saw what Pinel was doing, and came back home and was like, I wonder if we're as cruel to mental health patients as they are. And she was, like, utterly mortified. And she was a Quaker, like, a super hyper-liberal Quaker. Um, so she came home and like just became a huge, she was like, no, 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 we can't do this anymore. But like, we were still not like, we had no alternative, right? So we like unchained them and then they were still like, you know, unwell, uncared for, just unchained. And then, you know, that's the unfortunate part about patients that are truly psychotic or manic, you know, alienist or whatever you are, all you could try to do is help these people take care of themselves. But there was nothing beyond that. Yeah. What's coming to my mind is um, when we have a patient who we are concerned that they, you know, in their state, they may be a harm to themselves or others, like the staff. Um, You know, I'm thinking of like my delirious patient in the middle of the night who's sundowning and, you know, didn't sleep all day, sleep wake cycles off. We call our our therapeutic intervention restraint either chemical restraint or physical restraint and when you you keep mentioning the you know chaining it's almost like there was you know restraint was the therapy and we're kind of going about it all wrong yeah i don't know it just felt like that just popped in my mind like what? you know restrain yeah. what you know you're it or or what have you yeah. yeah, take it away. <laughs> Restraint and, and, and bondage is a great, uh, I think, analogy for a lot of the, the, the kind of ideas behind, like, psychodynamic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Um, but what happened was, like, we didn't really have anything until World War II, and the Nazis kept invading for its office. And so, like, a story about me, like, I, first year of med school, and that, like, you're sort of your last summer vacation ever, right? It's, it's like a significant thing, like, between first yeah. and second year, where you're, like... I have to study for board exams next summer, but this summer, this summer is our summer. So we went to Europe and it's we like went to Vienna. It's like snow day. Oh my, it was <laughs> like snow, snow month. Yeah. Anything can happen on the last, last summer break of adulthood. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was like a little bit of like a dazed and confused moment uh, at times. I won't elaborate on that. I refuse. Um, but... <laughs> I went to, to Freud's house, which was cool. Um, and I had, like, no inklings to become a psychiatrist. Like, I was 100% like family medicine or, like, maybe surgery or something like that. Um, I'm not an overachiever enough to be a surgeon, for sure. Like, I can't take standardized testing seriously. I just, Neither like, it seems I. so performative. Yeah, I know. Like, I can't at all. I'm like, uh, I can only do well enough to pass, and that's it. <laughs> big mood. Because it's, like, it seems so futile, right? Like, yeah. it's Sisyphus, like, pushing the thing up the hill for no reason. Anyway. Um, the people who are psychoanalytically inclined are like spinning their wheels listening to us talk about that right now, (laughs) by the way. They've already turned it off. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so like when, when Freud escaped, because he finally basically got sick of their crap because they kept demanding payment and he's like, 
you know, they ransacked his house, and, you know, he had, like, a pretty neat place, and he was an eccentric guy. Um, all oh, I sacks. bet he had a sick house. Oh, it was pretty cool, yeah. It yeah. was, like, legit. Um, yeah. He had a weird custom-made chair, because he liked to slouch. He had, like, weird sensory issues. <laughs> like, all evidence points that Freud probably had autism, just by the way. Um... And I love this because Oliver Sacks talks about it in Musicophilia, where, like, he was unable to, like, appreciate music. He, like, didn't get it, right? Like, and the only people I've met who, ex- like, expressed it the way that Freud did were on the autism spectrum, like, strongly. Um, so, anyway, one of my favorite topics is, like, Freud is a neurodivergent, but we're digressing a bit. Um, but, yeah, he, he basically fled to the U.S. He has saved up his money, like, got a visa to get the hell out of there and, like, you know, came to the U.S. and came to New York City where he mostly treated wealthy Caucasian or Jewish patrons who were the sort of quote-unquote worried well, which is kind of where psychiatry got its bad reputation in the U.S. because it was like, you guys are just in it for the money. You only treat wealthy, you know, white, or in his case, Jewish patients. And um, that was kind of where, like, we got the, the whole head shrinkers thing is, like, you only saw people who were famous and say so where you're shrinking their big ego. Treating um, so their like, narcissism. Right. And so, like, mm-hmm. head shrinkers is, like, is a pejorative that comes out of psychoanalysis. Like, we're called shrinks because of this socioeconomic, like, problem with psychoanalysis. And that, like, all of his observations were based on wealthy New Yorkers, Upper West Siders, as you will. Um, and sort of ignoring a little bit of the rest of New York. Um, but the, the weird part was you could convince somebody out of their psychosis or delusions by using psychoanalysis. So, like, that was one of the things. And there was a whole bunch of, like, problematic assumptions sort of just based on making stuff up. And, and did he treat mostly women, do you think? It was it was both. So the idea of him being, like, super dry, too, like, he, he took, like, one of his patients who was a physician on a skiing trip with him. Like, he didn't have, like, amazing boundaries like we think of as, like, psychoanalysts having, like, at all. He was more like the uh, the shrink in that show that's played by, by Paul Rudd. <laughs> he was a lot more like that than, like... The shrink yeah. next door. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think... So, psycho... Talking about, like, psychoanalysis or whatever. So, the original Freud model is, you know, someone comes down, they, like lie on the couch and they say whatever comes to their mind about their dreams or like whatever and then he potentially interprets it and they come see him like every day for years and years and years until they're better and that's like the original model and now you know there's no lying on the couch anymore um but sometimes a lot of those same underlying approaches still exist but I think with psychoanalysis presently at least the older ones that I you know trained me they were so rigid with boundaries they would be like your patient shouldn't know anything about you but the reality is when any of us walk in the door people know things about us they they can judge us based upon our haircut our skin color how we talk how we dress if we're wearing a wedding band things like that and you know there's a so part of the whole idea behind this and the older psychoanalysts and why they say you know you need to keep everything about yourself a secret is they have this idea that you're a blank a blank slate and that you project whatever the patient is back to them or whatever the patient needs to be but that's not possible no one's a blank slate I do overall I am a fan 
of the psychoanalytic approach over like CBT and things like that. I'm going to put it out there. But I think that it's become very, very rigid. And that's why I love the book, uh, The Gift of Therapy, which talks about more like a humanistic approach. And he talked about times where like, you know, a patient was like crying and he held their hand. Whereas like the psychoanalysts that trained me were like, you know, like I told them when I was saying goodbye to a patient I worked with for two years, they like hugged me and I was like, I didn't stop it. And I really didn't care what they said. And they were like, well, you need to at least document that for your safety. Like you shouldn't have let them hug you. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to do what, what makes sense as a human being. But I definitely lean towards the psychoanalytic approach. I just think it's been a little, uh, it's some people take it to the very extreme that I don't think really makes sense. Like at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And, and Freud yeah. didn't take it to that extreme either. Yeah. So it's like, it's not even authentic. Like, yeah, yeah. it's... And I think it's therapeutic. I think that what you said in the beginning is people looking for your wedding ring, looking for your haircut. They're trying to relate to you because they're about to tell you things. You know, it's it's almost like on some conscious, like uh, on some subconscious bias, like they're trying to, I don't want to say like have collateral, but they're trying to like figure you out a little bit so that they know what they're about to, you know, who they're about to share this with. They, you know, it's a little bit of, of insurance to them. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's understandable at the end of the day. I, you know, when I see someone, all of us, when someone enters the room, we make little judgments about them. And hopefully if that person is about to be your psychotherapist, it's pos like a positive transference towards them. Like, you know, I, feel like I trust this person or you know they're I something about their appearance is comforting to me yeah we literally have to document if we think that they were appropriately addressed or appropriately dressed for the weather and groomed (laughs) appropriately like there is judgment like don't even pretend that there is not on some level (laughs) yeah I, if, I find it funny because we're talking about like, so the idea of countertransference and transference, which we can define, yes. right? Like, so, you know, countertransference is how the therapist feels about the patient. And it's supposed to be like, you're using your finely tuned intuition and emotions to like understand that when you feel a certain way, it's an indication that this patient may suffer from this pathology. Yes. And then transference is how the patient feels about you. So they walk in the room and like the things they imagine about you. And like, everywhere I go when I tell people what I do which like I try not to but sometimes it slips out or people just ask me and like I I just I stopped caring somewhere in residency I'm like yeah I'm a psychiatrist whatever um and people are always really surprised because it's like a guy with like long hair wearing Doc Martens and like a death metal band (laughs) t-shirt um and like yeah I don't look like a psychiatrist but like it's also okay because like people who are like not wanting to talk about how they feel do feel comfortable around me and I feel uniquely privileged that I can like access as a multiracial you know person sort of ethnically indeterminate um people feel comfortable with me who wouldn't feel comfortable elsewhere and have actually told me so and so like yeah this idea that you have to be a blank slate like you can't be like unless you're literally like a shapeless amorphous blob like you know Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think like a lot of patients told me because I have a more, I guess, alternative appearance that it made them feel more comfortable. Um, And on top of it, you know, like you're saying, people are surprised that you're a psychiatrist. I think in my situation, people think I'm straight up lying. (laughs) 
can I, I, have, and I don't care. I have, it's like, whatever. Like, I know I don't look like a psychiatrist. I think that's a good thing. Like, I don't give off some vibes that I'm like better than everyone else around me. I understand like, I'm just a human being walking around in like sweatpants and socks and, you know, my sandals, like everyone else, like who cares? So I have two things to say. First is, screw it. We're all calling ourselves alienists now, or we're bringing it back <laughs> yes. because that's awesome. Second, what's so interesting is probably I would say, I don't know, maybe half, more than half the time that I tell people that don't know me that I'm a neurologist, they literally all make the same joke. They're like, oh, so you would love me because my family, we're all crazy. Or, oh, yeah, no, you know, I definitely could introduce you to some people that need a shrink. And I'm like, oh, no, you you don't, you would not want to see me because it would have meant, meant you had a debilitating stroke. <laughs> but why, when I said neurologist, did you automatically, I just think people have a, they kind of put the two together, which goes back to what we were saying about how the divergence between the two specialties kind of came about. It's really interesting. That is interesting. I didn't know neurologists got that response. I know that people generally think psychiatrists and psychologists are the same, but no, I get, I get the same. It's, I'm not even exaggerating. Like no one will be like, Oh, so you know, all the cranial nerves or, Oh, you know, what do you think about, the new article that came out about aspirin. No, it it literally goes to like a sh- the shrink cliche joke. I, I'm surprised that no one like does the thing that you do when you wear like a like a Thrasher T-shirt and they're like, oh, you're a neurologist. Name three cranial nerves. You know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh my god. Good stuff. Any other thoughts that we should cover on? You know the whole psychoanalysis psychodynamic whatever name we're giving it these days all of this damage of like what you have to look like to be a a a, quote head shrinker like comes from this so i i just like i want to share a quote from uh, jeffrey lieberman who's like the ex-apa president he said something to the effect of like when freud came to america it made psychiatry an intellectual wasteland for decades to come and like I like I was like wow that is like shots fired like in a big way and that's in his book like the book called Shrinks where he like talks about the history of psych. He's obviously like highly opinionated and I mean like we are too it's fine yeah. like we're allowed. Um but I like really I vibed with that cuz I I realized that like so many of the people that I see would have been totally just misinterpreted by Freud and I see people all the time who are like I don't want to go to therapy like I was psychoanalyzed in like you know the 70s and like that stuff was bogus and they talk about this horrible experience they had and then like we do like a little brief therapy together and they're like that was awesome like I feel better and I'm like yeah that's not everything is just like some guy sitting at you and feeling judged about how you feel you know you know and that's why I think this whole humanistic approach is really like the winner Um, you know, like what you're saying is reminding me. So I had psychoanalytic supervisors in residency and I remember telling them, you know, something they offer their thoughts on like interpretation. Like a lot of my, my sessions with patients were recorded with their consent. So we could also like view the footage and stuff. And I remember my one supervisor, like he started talking about like how the patient imagined me as like an uninviting vagina or something I'm just like Jesus Christ like I I don't I really don't think it I don't think this is this is how it is like 
you know, not everything is some crazy sexual interpretation. Some things are honestly just as they appear. It is exactly what it seems. It's not, you know, some weird genital interpretation. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Exactly. Ceci n'est pas un peep. Wow. Yeah. So should we get into some of these other types of therapy and sort Please. of describe our thoughts on them? So the next thing we're going to hit on is CBT, created by the lovely Erin Beck. Mills, do you want to share your thoughts on it first, and then I will share my very opinionated thoughts, and Allie, you can make up some opinions as we can go. Can we just, like, can we tell the <laughs> whoa, story? Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Beck was a neurologist, you know, like... <laughs> Again, neurologists are like are are the are key the because you know you always need an outsider in some way and someone who's like a little a little weird to, to do it. Excuse me, I am board certified <laughs> as are you in both neurology and psychology. I don't know shit it's about the same neurology. Damn brain. I it's do software not know and hardware. hardware. Thank you. That is my favorite <laughs> analogy. Software and hardware. We're yeah. software people. You're a hardware person. Exactly. And if you don't have both of them, you don't have a functional system. Yep. And no and one so, wants to come to me for any type of neurological exam. Like, I can tell you if something's messed up, and then I'll send you <laughs> somewhere else. Yeah, with neuro, I feel like the doctor from Idiocracy, you know, where you're like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> your shit's all fucked up. Yeah. Um, anyway. Aaron Beck, let's, can I tell, like, the story in the most, like, colloquial, like, bro SoCal way possible? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So this is my favorite way of telling the story. Obviously, like this is the sort of like dramatization. If I were to cast the film, like I would do it this way, even though it's not accurate. But basically, I'm here for like, this. yeah. So Beck was like a neurologist, and he's like, oh, this like psychiatry stuff looks fantastic, and he like went into it and got super into it, and he was like really, really devoted to like to psychoanalysis. Like he drank the Kool Aid like full force. Like he didn't just like sip on it. He just, like, grabbed the picture and, like, guzzled it down and was, like, super into psychoanalysis. He was like, this is all so true. I'm super vibing with this in the sort of cultish way that, like, any therapy is. And, like, <laughs> but so, like, you know, Freud would, like, fire you from his, like, little little in-group if you, like, question him. And so, like, Beck was, like, the perfect guy to challenge Freud because, you know, if you, like, weren't sort of drinking the Kool-Aid, you were out. And Beck was like, this is so great. I'm a neurologist. I'm, like, into the scientific method. I'm going to prove that Freud was right. And so he, like, took one of Freud's assumptions about depression, because he was in Philly and he's working with Philly selection buff population, like, mostly depressed, worried, well people. He was not working in, like, Germantown in Philly, you know, or with mm-hmm. the, the Drexel population. Um, uh, yeah. He's so probably the, in Rittenhouse know. Square. Yeah, which <laughs> yeah. is actually, it's funny, when I was in Philly, that's where I stayed, and, and uh, anyway, there's, there's some stories there. But yeah, it's, you know, fancy schmancy row houses and whatnot, but... Uh, we're being judgy. So <laughs> I can feel it. I'm allowed to be. I'm from there. so That's true, yeah. I'm going to yeah. joke away. It's one of my favorite. So he probably, love... he probably lived in Northern Liberties. I'm going to put to, him there. We have to put him in the context of the time. Right now he might live in Northern Liberties, but back then Northern Liberties wasn't even a thing. It was like, you know. Well, he died last year. Oh, well, maybe at the end of his life he lived in Northern Liberties. But when he was debating psychoanalysis theories he at that time period i've decided he was in random house <laughs> right on i'm i'm enjoying it that that analogy just because it has like a clear mental picture of how schmancy it is 
Okay, so like, what did Freud think about depression? So depression was like inwardly directed anger, right? That was his like idea. So people were depressed. And, you know, like we've seen this before, people who are depressed often exhibit what appears to be on the outside, self-sabotaging behavior. You know, we know from mouse models, depressed mice have learned helplessness. Like if you open the door to the cage, horrible test, by the way, as a vegan person, I was like, I just like shudder at this a little bit. They like electrified the bottom of this cage and they put depressed mice in there and they opened the door to the cage. Like, here's the door, you can leave. And they shocked the floor and the depressed mice just stood there and like took it. Aww, that's Isn't that sad. messed up? That's the yeah. Point. Like every other mouse was like, like doors open, like I'm out of here, you know. And so Freud like kind of built on this, like, and we know like if you observe the behavior of people with depression, if you're being a little judgy, uh, it looks like they're just sort of sort of sabotaging themselves. I mean, like, sort of yeah, uh, David that's... Bowie, the man who fell to earth, right? Like the door was open the whole time. I think I and just ruined that movie. People, if you haven't seen their, it, <laughs> their, their loved ones get so frustrated with them because they, they they take it as oh you know it's a pity party things like that and and you know that's it's yeah. really they can't help yeah. it. And there is a fine line between you know people you know choosing to be depressed versus like uh, legitimately fit on a physiological severely depressed and they you know they can't there's no way they're going to find something inside of themselves to get out of whatever is going on right. but it's complicated seen, <laughs> yeah it's like you know someone has a job interview and they like don't show up for it because they're depressed and they're just like they just like lay in bed and you're like what why did you do that like this would have totally taken you out of this horrible situation in life and they're like why bother eeyore uh, you know yeah. you know I yeah, eeyore yeah well, Eeyore personality disorder. I think we talked about that before, Mill. Eeyore personality yeah. disorder. I love it. Absolutely. I think it needs to be in the DSM. I'm mad it's not in there because it's a legit thing. Well, you're you're an attending now. We can we can literally make that happen. La- I'm gonna I'm gonna lobby. I'm gonna advocate. I'm gonna like show up with weapons and demand, mad with power. <laughs> demand it Wait. gets into the DSM. Legitimate question before we get back on topic: Is learned helplessness at all? Or could it ever be confused with just very severe psychomotor slowing? Yes. Like just really so <laughs> yeah. slow, you're not even you're not even going anywhere. Well, yeah, and two, it's really complicated because you know there can be people who get so depressed that if they're not treated appropriately, they get catatonic, and then they need like ACT uh-huh. to get out of it. And there yeah. are people who you know life has just failed them so many times. They've you know they've interviewed for fifteen jobs. And they haven't gotten it every single time. They're just like, fuck it. Like, it's not worth it. Gotcha. Like, there's not something physio- like physiological going on in that situation, but it could appear the same way as someone gotcha. who does have something really severe going on that needs extreme medical treatment. <laughs> and that was Freud's assumption, exactly. Is that he saw these people who, like, had 15 things that went wrong, like 15 job interviews, and he's like, well this is self-serving. You have this inwardly directed anger. You're really angry at someone else, like your mother. Um, but it's inappropriate <laughs> to be, it, it's always about your mom and Freud, right? Like it's, yeah, it's I know. Just at the joke. top of my head and you like your mother, for example, yeah. I don't know. I'm Every Freud. time the word mother, you know, it's like, um, there's a guy on TikTok who's a, who's a psychiatrist that does a lot of Freud jokes. And he's like, every time he utters the word mother, it's like him dressed up with like round glasses. And he goes, mm, you're a mother, <laughs> is it? But like, it's inappropriate to be mad at your parents, right? so like, so you get mad at yourself, and like, it's in really directed self anger. And the assumption was that like, people with depression, like, purposely sabotage themselves because they feel better when they fail, 
and like ooh super judgy right but like it kind of looks like that on the outside when like they keep like, they stop showing up to things like the psychomotor slowing which is like a more modern biological based interpretation which is like we, we know that to be legit right like that's a thing and so all this ties together because like Beck was like I'm going to prove that it's inwardly directed self-anger so Freud like devised this card game where you would, it was rigged, right? So, like, just like going to Vegas is rigged for you to lose. Mm -hmm. He had some people rigged to, to win and some people rigged to lose. And he was like, if the people who fail, who are depressed, will curiously feel better about themselves. And if I judge their self-esteem, if I make them fail repeatedly at this game that seems really easy, they'll be like, oh, it's okay. Like, I feel better now that I am keep failing, right? And the people But it's that, rigged! Right, but they don't know that, you know? But if they fit, uh, see, so that we, we see issues with it. So yeah, what? we do. What I mean, we're, we're pointing <laughs> so out the problem. Yeah. Well, it, like unsurprisingly to any of us, like the depressed people, when they like got like they succeeded at this card game that they thought was a game of skill, they're like, I'm pretty good at this, and they felt better about themselves. And Freud was like, Well, what? Like this isn't supposed to happen. And so by using a double-blind sort of trial, you know, like was like, Wait a second, maybe maybe Freud was wrong. And that's like heresy, right? Like Freud would have burned you at the stake and cast you out and you would have been like, you know, had to go back and, and be a neurologist instead. Like that was it for you. Right, and live um, in Center City and just, you know. Right, downhill. treat strokes forever, you know. Yeah. Um, it was more fun back then because you didn't have imaging, so you were like a magician. You couldn't do anything. You were a magician, yeah. I d diagnose and adios, right? That's the... Uh... <laughs> but back with, like, I feel like the the progress of, of medicine in general is like wrought with irresponsibility. So like Beck decided to like make these new ideas, that like maybe his depressed patients that he was psychoanalyzing um, had like some illogical ideas about themselves. Like maybe they thought that they were a failure, but really like life was just unnecessarily cruel to them. And maybe if they had a couple wins in their life, they'd feel better. And so he identified this idea that like a lot of depressed people, not all of them as we'll criticize later, like and be super judgy as I like to be. Mm -hmm. Um, we can be the mean girls of, of CBT. Um, but, like, you know, so he, he started doing this, like, nascent CBT on his patients. And, like, we talked earlier, like, right, CB, like, CBT versus psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis takes, like, years, right? So, like, he did the CBT on, like, some of his depressed patients. And after, like, 10 to 15 sessions, they were like, cool, I'm good, see ya, later. And his supervisor, who was a psychoanalyst, was like, Beck you're not very good at psychoanalysis. I don't know about your future in psychiatry. And he was like, no, bro, like they're, they're like better, you know? And this is my SoCal-ism of, of Beck. I'm making him into someone he wasn't, but it's so much fun. Um, and so he was like, no, 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 seriously, like talk to them. Like they're, I swear, swear they're really better, you know? And uh, they, they were in fact better. And his supervisor, instead of, you know, like writing him up and firing him from residency, which would probably happen today, was like, <laughs> huh. I wonder if this this Beck guy uh, is onto something. I mean, he's kind of weird. He wears a bow tie. He buttons up his top button on his shirt. You know, like <laughs> he's a little strange. But maybe there's something to it. And so he looked into it, and like then CBT was born. And they were like, "Wait, you can get better in 10 to 15 sessions." And so like, okay, that CBT was poised as behavioral therapy was the new thing. And if you change your thoughts, you'll change the way you feel. And this was like a revolution in the world about like mental health so insurance companies are gonna love this and the right. thing and is <laughs> like when we talk about Aaron Beck like once again if we're thinking about the person in the time it, it really was great like what his thoughts at that time were did change things in a really positive direction I think you know my issue nowadays like for example I was trained 
a little bit under someone who trained under Aaron Beck and liked to bring it up every single day. And, you know, he would just go on his rants about if you change your thoughts, you can change your feelings, the patience, literally, like, every single day. And then he got mad at me one time because I was, like, on my cell phone and reported me to my attending. Like, I wasn't allowed to open my cell phone when I was around him and his group therapy. Um, The narcissism. But anyways, but I think a lot of people who are psychotherapists who specifically do CBT with their patients, and this is not all of them, but a lot of them are very, like, here's a worksheet. And to me, it seems very juvenile. Like, that can be great if someone is a teenager and they don't have a higher level of insight. But I think for a lot of, like, higher functioning people, it's really not as simple as change your thoughts, change your feelings. When I was, like, college age, that type of CBT would have helped me, um, that type of approach, because it really was, you know, I was having thoughts that weren't helpful. But as you get older, I think a lot of people are at a higher functioning level where it's not that simple. It's not just change your thoughts and your feelings change. Um, But I think for a certain functioning level of individuals, like especially adolescence, I think it can really be helpful because they're not going to have the type of insight required to do high level work. And some of the more surface level stuff is going to be more helpful. Has anybody here been in cognitive behavioral therapy before, like as a patient? You don't have to answer if you don't want to. So, uh, I, you know, lots of times when you're in therapy before you're a psychiatrist, you don't really know what type of therapy you're in. Right. But I did go see this guy twice when I was in college, and he was a huge creeper. Like, looking back, he was very inappropriate. So, and he creeped me out the second time, so I'm glad I didn't go back. But he, like, I think he sort of CBT'd me a little in the session because I was, like, there because I was very anxious about, like, getting into med school or something. I was, like, did 19. Did you use CBT as a verb? You were CBT'd? Yeah, yeah that's kind of like I the Nexium thing where they talk about the, you know, Nexium, the cult. Did yeah. You, did you watch yeah. those episodes? They're no, talking I've about heard of it. ESR or whatever. The, the thing they do, ESP, the thing they do, like, mm-hmm. to gaslight each other. Well, anyways, he was like, he was like, if you fail your test, what's the worst thing that could happen? So I felt like it was like a little bit of like, that's a CBT thing to say. Um, but no, I, uh, I, so the, my therapy history is like when I was 16, I went to therapist once because my parents were upset that I was sexually active. So they wanted me to go see a Christian therapist so that they would like you know, tell me I was terrible. But the Christian therapist was just really supportive. So then my parents said I couldn't go back to them. Amazing. I love that. <laughs> they didn't agree with us. Yeah. I love that. And then I went for the two sessions and I was like 19 to this guy who turned out to be a creep. But his, his, what's the worst thing that could happen completely healed me. So I was good. Um, and I have more therapy experiences after that I'll talk about later. But those are my uh, teenage year experiences. So I, I have a little bit of experience as a patient um, for OCD, and I kind of looked at it like, you, you don't think I've, I've thought of that? You know, um, one of the techniques or, you know, one of the things that my psychiatrist recommended was, well, why don't you just tell yourself, this is just OCD talking right now when you have, like, you know, a thought. And, and I was just like, I've thought of that, obviously. If it worked, I wouldn't be here. So I don't know if it just wasn't 
the right type or I, you know, I, I kind of felt like, um, I was already a physician. (laughs) So there you go. So that goes back to like, that might've been helpful if you were getting stuck in therapy for OCD when you were a teenager, you might've actually not had that thought yet. Okay. But what I'm saying is if you're a physician, if you're a fucking physician, there's no physician that hasn't had some type of thought like, this is my OCD and I can tell it to go away. Like, of course you've already tried that. So, yeah, you need someone who can help you on a deeper level than something so surface level. Right. I, that's like the biggest criticism of, of, of CBT is that it's pedantic. It feels like someone's mansplaining your feelings to you. Yes. And like, Yes. Okay, yeah, so, like, this is the biggest criticism. So, like, I had a great experience, amazing therapist. We started out doing CBT because I was like, I'm here because I have test anxiety. And, like, legitimately, I walked into my first test in med school. Like, I've never had to work that hard at school. Like, really? Um, But, like, med school's actually hard, and, like, I had no appreciation for that, and I failed it because, like, I just walked in there. Like, I was like, study? Why would I do that? Like, that's stupid. I failed my first test, too. Did you really? Oh, God. It was a midterm, but, like, they put me in front of a committee. They're like... You know, Mill, no, like, you know, we've, we've noticed that you did really poorly. And I'm like, I, like, dudes, I flat out didn't study. Like, they're like, you know, this is med school, right? And I was like, <laughs> I know. Oh. <laughs> but I developed such a complex because, like, I never had test anxiety in my life. Like, I, I showed up to my SATs, like, hungover at one point and, like, aced them. Like, it was like, you know. And, you and weren't I, anxious. I, well, SATs, you know. I was hungover. Can... I was pretty damn anxious. The, <laughs> the difference like... between med school and everything else is that, the other stuff you can get by with cramming and a bit of intelligence. In med school, you, you can't. You have to just study really hard all the time. So right. Well, in my the assumption MCAT was can be mastered. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a logic puzzle, and I love puzzles. Yeah. Give me a puzzle, and I'll like. Oh, you'd make a good neurologist. Oh, I love neurology. I mean, in another <laughs> life, I would do I would do neurology, but like. I read some Oliver Sacks, and I was like, Oliver Sacks was a neurologist, but he was really a psychiatrist because he was a humanist. Um, but I'm being judgy. Um, but he, he was my favorite example of what neurology and psychiatry united could look like. Um, but yeah. But we were but talking we, about your therapy experience. Yeah, we started out doing CBT for like the okay. imposter syndrome of med school. And like it was immensely helpful because he was like, you know, like, is that a realistic thought? Are you really, you know, you got this far? Are you really an imposter? Every med student or, like, law student or anybody who's, like, achieved anything academically has that moment where, like, am I a phony? Yes. Am I fake? And CBT's real, real good at that, like, that little illogical voice in your head that's, like, constantly there. They're like, maybe I am, like, completely incompetent. And I think CBT is helpful for that. But, like, I think most adults by some point have, like, figured that out in their life. And how are you going to tell someone who, like, comes from a war zone and, like, has experienced massive trauma that their thoughts and their feelings are illogical. Like, they're, they're not. Like, they know how bad things can get. And, and we see in being trauma-informed where CBT starts to crumble and crack at the edges. Um, and I love the edge of where things start to break, you know? It's like turning a, a guitar amp, like, up to, up to 10, and you hear the vacuum tube start to crackle, and you, you hear the, the, the mechanical failings of the system. And CBT fails when we account for people that have experienced massive trauma and massive problems in their lives. And it is, it is a beautiful edge of, like, psychiatry where these people have real problems, you know? And, like, yeah. we, have to, we have to think differently. And that's and where D 
DBT comes in, but I want to make sure we don't miss this. The one type of CBT that I know, Mill, we both talked about that can be uh, pretty good. That's a specific type of CBT is the CBT for insomnia. Yeah. And it's the gold standard for people with insomnia. So if you have a patient that's coming to you and they've tried, you know, their their 10 different psychotropics for sleep and they're asking you for benzos, you send them, you tell them they need to find a a psychotherapist who specializes in CBT for insomnia. It's so effective. Yeah, and and we, we, you and I, like, collaborated you created that list i made a Mm -hmm. smart phrase for the usual electronic medical record software and i've been sharing it with people and i always share it by saying like i have this friend that i know online is a an eminent psychiatrist in uh, the northwest who crowdsourced this from numerous therapists and psychiatrists it sounds much more impressive than like i just hit up my buddy on ig and i think when i share the list i say oh like essentially my buddy and i made this yeah (laughs) I mean, people learn to it, but, like, I'm, I'm always surprised when people read the stuff that I send them, but people actually do, and um, they were like, this was amazing. Like, it actually really, really helped, and, you know, whatever's left over, it's like, oh, you have sleep apnea, okay, we need to fix that, because, like, it, it's great. CBTI is, it really is the gold standard for sleep, because that mentality and that systematic way of approaching it, like, works great for sleep. It just does. Yeah, and the app that I mentioned, someone could just go into their app store type in CBTI and the VA hospital, I guess, made an app. Essentially, it, it gives sort of CBT principles within the app. So that's helpful, helpful option too. And you know, you're going to get some people that are completely unwilling to consider therapy or whatever, but that doesn't mean that you can't still recommend it and be like, just give me the drugs. Yeah, because sleep is maybe one of the most, or like, especially insomnia, is one of the most psychological things there is, so. We should talk about, if we're talking about the the behavioral therapies, the change your thoughts, change how you feel. My favorite figure, um, and I, I think I told you this in, in writing, that if we didn't talk about him, I would physically explode and spontaneously combust. But we yeah, have to that. talk about Albert Ellis. Um Albert Ellis is an admirable creep, I think is how I described him. And you talked about, like, your yes. creep. So, like, Albert Ellis was a, was a, you know, psychiatrist who, like, to this day, you can go to New York City and watch what they call, like, Friday Night Lights, which is not football-related and doesn't have an Explosions in the Sky soundtrack. That part I'm disappointed about. The football part I could take or leave. Um, but, like, you can watch live therapy, and it's, like, on a stage, and there's real patients and real, real psychiatrists and real therapy and everyone watches like it's a freaking theater performance and that is so nerds so but that is so albert ellis like albert ellis started doing therapy because he didn't know how to talk to women and he wanted to get a girlfriend and he had terrible anxiety he is a very quote-unquote neurotic right freud um guy from new york and he was like maybe i can convince myself to like be not anxious around women and maybe I can get a girlfriend. And so Albert Ellis, like if he was in, in candid moments was like, this is how I developed REBT. And he and Freud happened at the same time, or he and, he and Beck happened at the same time. Um, and, you know, coming from Freud and into this behavioral therapy revolution of like how you think can change how you feel in some cases. And again, right. Like wealthy New Yorker, like, okay, great. 
really specific, oddly specific population, but like he would basically argue people out of their way of feeling. And if you watch him and he's like, you can watch it on YouTube. He had a couple things where he talked about like assumptions that people have about life. And there's a film about him called like masturbation, um, where people engage in like these thought distortions about like saying, I must do something or like the, the world is supposed to be fair. And he's like, no, the world is fair and it's unfair and terrible. Like that's the way that it is. Like, what are you going to do about it? Um, and it was, it was fantastic. Um, can I drop a story on him real quick? Cause yeah, please. When I, I'm not gonna lie. I'm like, once again, I'm like a space cadet half the time, and I'm like, on my own planet. I'm not aware of like most of the things I should be aware of, and a prospective patient, a insomnia patient, like chronic insomnia for like decades, was talking to me. Uh, the consensus was that you know I thought they needed to see a specialist, not me, like a sleep specialist or a CBTI. I did mention to them. But, you know, when they were telling me their past history of treatment, they talk, told me they saw Albert Ellis. And, oh and they, like, they assumed that I knew who it was. <laughs> and I was like, no, to be honest, I don't know. And they're like, oh, it's the, they told me it was the person who started CBT. I was going to argue with them. I'm like, that's in her back, but whatever. It's R-E-B-T. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, I was telling them to do CBTI. They were like, oh, I've already seen the best. They were like, yeah, Albert Ellis was amazing. He, like, saw through me in a second. And... I'm like, okay, but you need help again, so. <laughs> I don't care who you saw. And, and it, you know, if, if Albert Ellis fails you, you're beyond what I can do. Right. And all these other people have failed you. Like, no one's ever told you to go to a specialist. This is what also gets me. <laughs> like, no, this is the thing, too. Like, so many people, if physicians or practitioners, they won't say that someone needs a specialist. And I am all the time, like, I am. I don't want to disappoint anyone. And I know if Same. they need it more than what I can offer, I'm like, nope. You because need, you, you know what you don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, if someone's tried, like, ten meds, ten different therapists, ten different psychiatrists, and they've all just been, you know, general boarded the same as me, like, I'm, I can't offer anything those people didn't offer. Like, you gotta it's know more, when it's, to hold them. Yeah, <laughs> it's worse when you don't realize that there's other avenues you're doing a huge disservice to the patient you know and in light of recent you know instagram stories that you're talking about you have to know when to refer it's not it's not a weakness it's actually you know you know that there's more out there and yeah oh my god yeah another wormhole yeah no i could go down on that one Two. Are, do we have any other thoughts on REBT or is it okay to talk about DBT now? Because we're hitting let's, on let's all move. our BTs. Let's go to the, okay. go to the next BT. Okay. Not, so not the Korean Korean dance. Uh. D- DBT <laughs> is my favorite. So I'm going to start start with this one. And I know we've mentioned it on the podcast before because we had our lovely guest Galaxy came on and spoke about you know her BBT diagnosis and her experience with DBT. Uh, and she did a great, great, uh, you know, summary of, I guess, DBT, what it's like to experience the patient. Essentially, it stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. Whereas, going back to what you were saying, Mill, about trauma and how people who are have traumatic experiences, CBT is really the wrong approach. That's oftentimes where more of the DBT outlook comes in because it says 
your feelings are valid. Your feelings don't need to change. But what we do need to work on is having you function better despite your feelings. Like, how can we strive for better? And DBT was created by Marsha Linehan. Is that how we say her name? Linehan. 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 And she was essentially, I believe she was diagnosed, and I'm saying this offhand, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe she was diagnosed with schizophrenia decades ago. And she realized, you know, that, and I believe everyone at that time who was borderline or whatever was lumped in as being psychotic, probably all the bipolars were as well. But she sort of realized this method that worked for her and sort of, I think, even developed was one of the leaders of identifying what borderline personality disorder was. She or was, yeah. At, yeah. And then, so she created this specialized therapy for it. And she has a very rigid model that is very inaccessible nowadays, but it involves like, you know, your group therapy going through like the tenets of DBT and then your own individual therapist that you can contact like 24 seven when you're having a crisis. Um, but nowadays I think our best hope for our patients if we think they would benefit from DBT is either getting an individual therapist who has some DBT training or even better for a lot of them is just getting them with any individual therapist and then a DBT group because for a lot of patients who have trauma histories and interpersonal difficulties and emotional issues going on, it can help to play these things out with other people who are suffering from the same issue. My favorite therapist where I work um, they just got a uh, DPT certification from like the Linehan Institute, and I'm so excited because they are the epitome of like what I think like amazing humanistic therapist is, and like it's so much about coping skills. They actually wrote a book. Um, I, I will one day feel comfortable plugging it and admitting I am who I am online and in real <laughs> life. Um, I try to keep those those things separate from like my work and like who I am outside of work. But um, they are, like, one of the most competent and, like, understanding people for doing DBT. And when they got certified, I was so, like, stoked about it. Because it's really about coping skills. It's about, like, okay, emotions are a thing, yes. And they're immensely inconvenient sometimes, aren't they? But they're real, and they're there, and we have to be able to deal with them. And so it's this idea that, like, you do have feelings, and they are there, but they're not, like, you are not your feelings. You are a combination of many things, and your feelings are just a part of that. And so the dialectic part is, like, you know, you can be both rational and emotional, and it's okay to be both, and you don't have to be one or the other, you know? Yeah, and I think that the evidence for DBT, and, and the thing is, like, you know, it's toted as for people with borderline personality disorder, but someone cannot be, like, fully borderline like meet the full criteria but you can still sense that they i if you're a good psychiatrist or anyone that they could benefit from from dbt you know it's not just for borderlines i do think it's just a really great modality and sometimes if you just have a suspicion that someone might even have like strong like traits of borderline that are making normal forms of therapy not as helpful for them to try to get them in with, you know, DBT therapy somehow. So what are those traits that you would recommend someone with DBT to? Okay, so I think, you know, generally the, I think the big thing would just be emotional liability, like someone who deals with a lot of uh, 
mood swings and hopelessness, chronic suicidality in and of itself. If someone had chronic suicidality, I would consider just based upon that, that they should get referred to DBT. Um, Because I think when someone has chronic suicidality, tolerating it, but also coming up with coping skills, like, okay, this is something that you're going to have to live with and we don't want you having... uh, you know, potential suicide attempts or being a high suicide risk forever. We want to feel more comfortable that, you know, and obviously that person is suffering. Um, so like I had, for example, my last year residency, I had a patient who I wasn't, didn't really think, like I thought there's potential that they might be borderline, but they definitely had some traits, but I also thought they were like severely depressed and I would try to play up DVT in every appointment. Like, hey, you know, I think this would really help you because they did, they were definitely suffering a lot. They were depressed and they were like chronically suicidal. So um, sometimes just based upon that alone, I think that can make someone better. And it's usually these individuals will have had some experience with therapy, but not really speak highly of it. Like be like, I, I don't really know if it was that helpful, like sort of you know, sort of a nonchalant attitude about their experiences. Like, they might not overtly say, oh, I hated my therapist or something like that. This sounds really personality disordered, but something more like it just wasn't benefiting them that much. I think my favorite part about DBT, and maybe it's just like, a, a again, like all of these therapies become a sort of a cult of personality, right? Like, everybody is looking for a guru in life, um, and that speaks a little bit to my background where like everyone's looking for this like spiritual guru right this like swami to tell them how to live their life to be fulfilled and find purpose um and this is like essentially a lot of what like therapy is and so linehan is amazing i love marshall linehan but like there is a little bit of cult of personality in the rigidity of dbt and we know that like people are different varied and, and diverse and like you have to be a little more flexible but like one of the things I love about Marshall Linehan, and I'll tell a story about some of the taught me DBT, um, is that she's very irreverent. And so when someone comes in, it's like sort of, you know, we've all seen this you know, from our perspective as, as clinicians. A patient who comes in, like almost threatening suicide if you don't give them what they want. Like, I want your cell phone number or else, you know, and, and sometimes it is that obvious, like I've had that before. And sometimes it's a little bit more subtle, but it's basically like, I want this inappropriate thing from you or else I will end my life. And Linehan's approach was like, okay, sure. You know, like she would frequently just tell people like, okay, I mean, like if this therapy doesn't work, but you have to really devote yourself, like actually do it. And if this doesn't make you feel better in two years, then you have my permission, you can end your own life. Like she would say stuff like that. Um, And that like little bit of irreverence is like so antithetical to like, what, what we think of as being therapeutic. That's so interesting because honestly, I didn't know that, but I straight up said, <laughs> you know, it, someone can throw me out the window for this or whatever. But I had a patient, you know, who I saw the other day and they were in like COVID positive, tons of pain. Their suicidality was contingent upon their pain. And I said to them, you know, you're going to, uh, and they were saying they were only suicidal because they were in so much pain from COVID. And I told them that I felt that, you know, things were going to get better for them one of two ways because they were either going to die of COVID or they were going to get better and then they would no longer feel pain and they would no longer be suicidal. So, you know, 
some people be like, oh my God, how could you say such a horrible thing? But I think sometimes you just need to be frank with people and it can work out a lot better that way. When you speak the unspeakable, it loses its power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you see a similar thing with, you know, with, with, I don't want to say like toddlers, but with like kids when, when they're, you know, being unreasonable or, you know, making demands, you throw it back to them and said, okay, you know, you want to run away? Go ahead, run away. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, all right. You know, it's like, I don't want to say it's calling a bluff, but it's almost like forcing them to think about what they're really saying. Yeah. And part of that too is like, I've definitely have conversations too. And this is all on the more like edge of things. Cause there are a lot of people who would shy away from this very far and be like, oh my God, it's horrible. How could you say things like this? But I'll even say to people sometimes, you know, like it is your choice if you want to end your life or not. Like if someone really wants to, there's nothing that any of us can do to, to stop you. At the end of the day, it is your choice. The whole purpose of psychiatry and a psychiatrist is to offer you help that will hopefully make that not the option that you want to go to. But we can't lock someone in a hospital forever. That's just not how it works now for suicidality. I mean, sometimes they try. I've seen times where patients have been in the hospital for like two years, but at that point, like, what what are we saving that person from? Like, are we going to argue that, you know, a life in the hospital for the rest of whatever life you have is is more valuable than than whatever is outside of the hospital? Like, I don't know. I think there's this weird ethical thing about suicide specifically that no one is allowed to be suicidal like we could go down a whole wormhole with like euthanasia and stuff like that and how the psych perspective and suicidality plays into it but i think it's a conversation most of the world isn't ready to have at least not in america in other countries maybe that power struggle's gone though when you speak it and you're like i have no power over you i'm only here by your own willpower yeah i'm only here to help right like you came to me so can you guys, for the neurologists and, and everyone else, can you give an example, maybe like role play a DBT? Because this is one that I don't think I know anything about. I don't know how to role play DBT. I only know like the 10, I don't know what goes down in their meetings. I think it's like, okay, so the most common thing for DBT is they go through like a workbook and they have some type of lesson every week that they go through in their group. And then there's some type of lesson and they all get to talk about like their lives and their feelings or whatever. And then they all like call each other out and stuff. Like that's my, that's my understanding of it. So the interpersonal dynamics get to play out in the group in like a safe space um, where they can push each other to sort of grow and get better. But, you know, I think a DBT intervention in general, like, being cognizant of it would just be like, you know, not invalidating someone's feelings, but still encouraging them to be better is what it comes down to. So I think we'd be like, my favorite part about DBT and the biggest complaint is that it's corny and it is corny. DBT involves a lot of acronyms because it tries to make distress tolerance skills easy to remember. So like dear man is one of them. Have you ever ever heard about dear manning something? So, like, I just, I had to look this up because, honestly, I didn't remember it, so I'm, like, admitting that I'm cheating. But, like, mm-hmm. um, so, Dear Man is, like, one of the things from the DBT textbook that's, like, how do you communicate your needs, right? Because a lot of people who 
are suffering from depression have a hard time communicating what they need from the people around them. And we see that. When we see people with it, like, you're like, why are you threatening to end your life? Like, you, you came here. Like, can we please talk about, like, what, what I can do to help you? You know, like, let's not make this a power struggle. Um, and they're distressed. They know how to deal with it. And so it's teaching people. So, dear man, okay, so each letter represents a step in communicating effectively. And DBT is all about, like, teaching you how to, like, have effective regulation skills and communicate what you're feeling rather than being sort of led by your feelings. So D, describe, say the situation without any judgmental words, which is, like, actually hard to do. Then express, use only I statements. We know this from couples therapy, right? Like, you're only allowed to use the word I when you're, like, talking about a conflict with your partner. Uh, assert, which is say what you need. Uh, sometimes identifying what your needs are is actually very difficult for people with difficulty af with affective regulation. Um, be very specific with your instructions. Um, R, from dear, reinforce, so reward the other person if they respond well, thank them, smile, use gestures to indicate that they're responding appropriately to your communications. Uh, M, mindfulness, so you know, figure out what your goals are, don't get sidetracked, um, focus on what you'd like to resolve, what your goals are. And then A, appear confident, um, which is like, you know, using posture, eye contact, basically communication skills, like that cue to remember, like, when I'm stating my needs, I need to state them in a way that's assertive. And then N, negotiate, if someone's unable to, like, respect your boundary, figure out how you can both respect your boundary, get what you need, and not violate their boundaries. So there's a lot about boundaries and, like, rule setting, and it, it provides this almost, again, software programming that people can incorporate into the way that they think to, like, deal with a brain that is responding to things in a way that is more extreme than others. And, like, people with DBT have biological differences. People with BPD have biological differences. Like, we know their endogenous opioid system, the thing you use to self-soothe, is hypoactive. We know that's the reason that they have higher rates of opioid use disorder, right? Like, that's, that's the thing. Um, there's some guys in Texas at Baylor that are, like, really big on fMRI studies with borderline personality disorder. Um, we know that the recognition of, like, non-positive motions in facial expressions done with high-speed cameras where someone's, like, smile, they can detect that someone's about to smile way before the rest of us can. So it's almost like this, like, neurodivergence in, in borderline personality disorder where, like, their brains literally work differently. Um, and so they're sort of tormented by this brain that functions differently than, like, everyone else's because they respond to non-negative things. They just detect that someone's face is about to make an expression, but it's often misattributed to be negative when it's neither negative nor positive or the person's just constipated, right? Like, that's my, my joke when a patient with BPD tells me, like, I, are you mad at me? I'm like, no, I literally just, like, ate spicy food for lunch and my stomach hurts, you know? Yeah, they do. The thing is, though, they are really good at picking up on your vibe because my one patient who, you know, was very borderline and it was something that we talked about a lot. Damn, I could not ever, like, if there was something going on with me, she could pick up on it so quickly and then she would call me out and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Because you can't really be like, no, things are terrible over here. Like, that's not the point of therapy. So I'd be like, no, I'm okay. But I was like, damn, I can't ever have a thing going on at all whatsoever. No one else picks up on it. And she picks up on it instantaneously. Listen was... to this. I think that that, what they, being able to pick up on that is actually evolutionary because we have 
thousands of different permutations of facial expressions that we can make with the muscles, the, you know, hundreds of different combinations of muscles in our face that I actually think that that at some point when, you know, language wasn't really at its heyday, I, you know, I think that that actually was something everybody had and then it just got mutated out because it must have been maladaptive at some point is a theory that I just made up. No, I mean, we know there's an area of the brain associated with facial recognition, right? Like some people have facial blindness. That's a neurological disorder. And so people with borderline personality disorder appear to have a hyperactive you know, region that in other people causes prosopagnosia, facial blindness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, this is the wonderful blend of psychiatry where we can like straddle this line and we can talk about things with like functional regions and whatever. Um, so that's... I think that's what's so cool about DBT is that it, you know, it was designed for borderline personality disorder, but it is useful for everyone. Yeah. I mean, honestly, DBT, the whole concept of it resonates more with me than like CBT. Like if someone was like, you have to go do CBT or DBT right now, I'd be like, fucking sign me up for DBT. Like (laughs) my feelings are valid. DBT. Like, we, we say, like, oh, well, unless you have borderline personality disorder, you can't go to DBT. Like, our insurance company won't pay for it. But the reality is, like, like a lot of people who have cluster B traits or defense mechanisms, to use the Beck term, uh, like, would super benefit from, from DBT. So, on the DL, you just tell your patient, hey, I'm not really sure you have borderline personality disorder. Honestly, you probably don't. There's this really great therapy that's only going to get approved if I put this on your diagnosis list. Ooh. So let's do it. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that I've done that. I'll usually review the criteria. Like, do you feel like this matches you? And they're like, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, because if it does match you. And then we'll, we'll talk about how it may apply to them. And um, we'll have this very, like, sort of tongue-in-cheek conversation where it's like, they're like, I do display these traits. I probably don't qualify for the disorder completely. But, like, it, you know... Who are we to gatekeep what would help someone? Exactly. Life? Yeah. Know, just, yeah. Yeah. And if insur- and, and insurance companies want to try to come after me for fraud for something I've never done, go for it. I'm just giving great advice over here. I, I want to be the person that's arrested for prescribing too many puppies. I feel like it kittens. That would be like my favorite <laughs> right? thing to be arrested for. Yeah. Like God forbid you you try to prescribe something that's preventative rather than like you know fixative. That's not really a word. Like, but ten thousand cats. (laughs) But also, you know, doctors get you know a bad rap for quote unquote putting patients in a box, like in you know giving specific diagnoses. Well, we have to because our world, you know, insurance is the god that dictates what is going to help you, and if we (laughs) feel you would benefit from something, we have to put you in. I'm sorry, you have to go in a box. You can't even get a visit paid for unless you list some type of diagnosis. So, like, you know, you just got to make your best guess a lot of the time. Like, for example, I don't work directly with insurance companies, but every almost every single patient who does have insurance wants, like, a super bill to get reimbursed by their insurance company. And I can't put no diagnosis on there. So sometimes, like, if I put something very vague or whatever, I'm just like, I had to list something. So Not this, otherwise specified. Th- yeah, this seemed to best fit whatever was going on because, you know, everything's also listed there for them to see. This so The nosology conversation where, like, you know, human beings innately, right, if you read, like, religious texts, what's the first thing, like, 
people in the creation story did. They like they like named things, right? Like that's human beings love to name things. And when we name things, we like going back to Immanuel Kant, we imagine what like, the idealized form of that is, and then we like you know, this is the celestial platypus and everything that has a beak and, and you know, has this general shape as a platypus. And so how do we name diagnoses? It's basically just by the same like gestalt sort of way. And everything in the DSM is this way to sort of quantify the gestalt of like what something is. But at the same time, like it's all fallible and malleable and vague on purpose. Yeah. So I am interested in your thoughts on ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, because I saw that you wrote down some of the things we're discussing, because yes, we do use outlines, because um, I see every single therapist writes, I am certified in acceptance and commitment therapy. <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea what that means. Like, I, so what is that? I, I'll talk about it, because I, I do narrative therapy, and I do intensive short-term psychodynamic therapy. Those are my two like therapeutic orientations. I've heard of both of those, but I've never, you know, trained under anyone who did them or anything. Yeah, and they're both quite different. But ACT is, like, a lot about your identity, your values, your beliefs, and then how to, like, align what you believe, what is servicing to your inner sense of self with what your your actions are in life. There's a lot of, like, creative activities. Like, you know, like, if you were to draw out what your coat of arms would be, what would that be? You know, what are your values? What value do you get for things? And then other concepts, like... My favorite is from a book called How to um, it's, uh, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, I think is the name of the book. I've heard of that. But it describes the yellow Jeep problem. So if I tell you to not think about a yellow Jeep, what are you doing? Now we're all it's in my head. Jeeps. Yeah. Right. So now for the next week, as I describe you, to not try to avoid thinking about a yellow Jeep as hard as you can. Like, you'll see nothing but yellow Jeeps everywhere that you go. And you'll start having intrusive this. thoughts about yellow Jeeps. Yellow Jeeps will like, be in your, <laughs> in your nightmares. Um, so the harder you try to not think about something, the more you think about it. And so the idea is to, to use like positive affirmations and positive thoughts to think about, to think about something consciously rather than try to avoid things. And again, step into your life in a way that is meaningful. So ACT was like used a lot. Um, and that book was used a lot by like the VA sort of like changes in people's life, major transitions. Like I found it to be helpful. I don't do it, but like I recommend it to people and people seem to like it. And I send out a lot of ACT worksheets to like get a vibe on if it's right for people Mm -hmm. yeah and then the next one listed is ipt interpersonal therapy that's just like a variant of like humanistic in my mind correct me if you think differently Mm -hmm. yeah yeah one of my coworkers uses ipt and is like very successful with it and and he's the kind of person that is immensely humanistic like kind listening like emphasizes people's positive qualities um, and also, like, that relationship between you and someone who's a good listener and, like, you know, giving you compliments when you, you do something well and, like, creating yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I vibe with. That's what I it's like. It's as effective as CBT in studies. It's just yeah. that, you know. It's a little harder to study. So everybody, like, who is outside of psych but in medicine, they tend to think, you know, well, CBT is the best. Shouldn't I be getting CBT? And it's just because... CBT is the easiest to study. The others are more subjective where the therapist is often basing the approach off of the patient. Um, You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. CBT does have a little bit of a one-size-fits-all approach. And because that, it's easier to study 
in research trials and then therefore state that it's successful. Because the reality is there's a group of people that will literally improve just from having therapy. It does not matter what type. And if you have a therapy type that's easily studied, that group of people will respond well to it, and that's what CBT has been able to do. I like to think about therapy as a medication. Like, mm-hmm. as a, you know, we think yeah. of, like, interventions, and, like, someone has these particular symptoms. And so if someone has a particular type of distress in their life, it's important for us to, like, characterize what it is and why they're having this distress, and then maybe we can, like, prescribe the correct form of therapy. So, like, even like, if it's not... Personalize. Yeah, yeah, because, like, if you're just, like, you need therapy, and therapy is this amorphous blob that you want to just, like, thrust on someone, like, you're not going to be very successful. Like, I think we've gotten a sense that, like, everything is very different. Like, CBT, very good for, like, the student who's got imposter syndrome. Like, ACT, really great for veterans who are trying to step into life and figure out what life means for them while also dealing with, like, intrusive thoughts and and things that they've experienced. Um, Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, too... Uh, if you're not in psych, because half of these I barely know what they mean outside of this conversation, like I have to like look it up and try to figure out like what it's referencing. I think when people are searching for therapists, most individuals actually have no idea what therapy is. And if they don't have any idea what it, what it is or what it's supposed to be, they can easily have a bad experience and write it off. So hopefully identifying the different types of therapy gives the listeners to this podcast some power in deciding what type of therapist they want for themselves if that appeals to them or even helping whether it's uh, a loved one or a patient decide what's best for them too. I usually lately you know if I have a patient who is depressed I I usually frame the question do you want more help than I can give. And I by leaving it open-ended, I found that a lot of times patients will either say, yeah, you know, we were talking about that medication, let me just do that. Or sometimes they'll say, I think I only need to talk to somebody. And I find that that's, I, and I'm always surprised at the ones who say, yeah, I, I don't think I need a medication, I just really want to talk to somebody. And they kind of self prescribe and then I can say great if they say I don't have time I can't see another doctor but I I need help I'll say okay well let's talk about medications you know let's see what we can do yeah and you know what too my biggest indicator for someone's appropriate for therapy or not you always have to ask you should always have a conversation but prior to that each of us have like a normal time we we spent with patients and if someone is like really pressing that time it can yeah, you know, we'll usually let them press it a little, but then at some point you have to end things. And the person who really needs more than your appointment time, that's a sign that they have a lot that they want to talk to someone about. And it's actually an indicator that they could be very good for therapy because one of the traits that is important for therapy is being able to verbally express your feelings or what's going on with you. So that's a really good indicator right off the bat. If someone just says, I'm depressed, but then stares at you and doesn't say anything the whole appointment, that patient might really struggle in therapy, but the person who just says so much that they need to get off their chest, so many questions they want to ask you, so many things, that person, there's a good chance that they would be interested in therapy and would do well in it. 
if someone just stares at me and they say they're depressed, I'd probably run a Bush Francis Catatonia scale and recommend <laughs> an Ativan Challenge or ECT. Yes, yes. Or they mention it on top of everything else. Like, oh, yeah, you know, this, that, and also I'm depressed, and then this and this and this, and then it ends up being, you know, I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it would be the, my goal in life if other specialties in medicine and other people were able to come to us and actually describe what they wanted to get out of therapy instead of it being this amorphous blob. And, like, we've spent some time sort of, like, talking down a little bit on psychodynamic and Freudian therapy. And, like, I, I know, like, you know, if you've had that training, you can see why it's valuable. But, like, there is a particular kind of person that really benefits from psychodynamic therapy. And, like, if you are really requiring self-understanding you're at a crossroads in life, you're trying to make a decision for like a career or a major change or a relationship that requires you to understand yourself a little bit better. Like psychodynamic theory is the only thing that's going to help you because like all the coping skills in the world don't matter if you don't understand what you really want out of life or your situation or your relationship. And so like there's even a role for this more open-ended version of things. And like there's a reason why we have different types of psychotherapy is like, just like medications, you know, like if you have someone has epilepsy, you're not going to prescribe everybody Depakote. Like epilepsy is not a homogenous entity right. and depression isn't either. And I think that's, what's so frustrating is that we call it depression and people are like, well, I'm depressed. You're like, okay, but what does that really mean? And some people get frustrated with me initially. And I'm like, yeah, but like depression can look really different for yeah. different people. People would ask, like, why haven't you done an episode on depression? And the reason is, it's the most broadest thing. It's, like, almost untouchable in some ways because it's an umbrella term. To one person, it just means they're sad. To another person, it means they're on their ass, debilitated, can't move, can't eat, can't do An energy level. Yeah. So, you know, it's just so different. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, like, when you're like a med student, you learn about oh, Siggy caps or like, which if any, <laughs> yeah. it's just like a screening Dig tool, faster. yeah, for these things. <laughs> but you know, I never use any of that. And what I learned was just how when you say you're depressed, what do you mean by that? How mm-hmm. does? It, and then you know, a couple of follow up questions, of course. But uh, yeah, it's just everybody has a different interpretation of these things, and it means a very different thing from one person to the next. And it's why we have different types of therapy because certain people mm-hmm. are not going to respond. Like, just like the, you know, CBT was really helpful for my test anxiety. When I was at a crossroads and like, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't think I like medicine anymore. You know, like CBT was not going to help me at that point. Right. You know what I mean? Like that was, that was a useless construct. And the same therapist was like really, what I credit him to was immediately switched into a psychodynamic approach and was like, okay. Like, let's talk about why this is such a problem for you. And, you know, I'd be in conversation with my parents, expectations, cultural, you know, expectations of, of what it meant to be successful and, and have your parents be proud of you. And, and that meant the world to me. But the door was opened by CBT. And what kept me and actually provided me to, to go to a place where I felt like I could still do medicine was that conversation where at one point, you know, we were talking about me wanting to go into psychiatry and he interrupts me, um, which again, Freudians would never do. So it's modern (laughs) psychodynamic. And he goes, whose permission are you asking for exactly? 
to do this. And because he knows I'm like a kind of rebellious, like, you know, like I rode a motorcycle into his appointment and like would take off my helmet and sit down and be like, I'm badass. And, uh, and it was like, it would piss me (laughs) off. And I was like, I was like upset. And I was like, am I like, am I seeking validation from people that don't matter? And it was like, this was like this moment where this was like long silence. We just stared at each other. If you were filming it, you would like cut to him staring at me staring at me and like I'm staring at him and and it was just this moment that like in my memory lasted for like an hour it was probably two seconds <laughs> but like it was, it was one probably of those... really uncomfortable <laughs> super uncomfortable <laughs> and he's just had this smile on his face and he was just like oh this is like I got okay. got I got my money's worth but it was like a formative <laughs> moment for me and like that's what you get out of psychodynamic psychotherapy that you won't get with more coping skills oriented so like coping skills insight oriented like I started out needing coping skills but then I was coping fine and I was still having problems and um that was formative for me I know we have a few more types of therapy to still discuss but as I have mentioned to Allie and Mill there is a little bit of a cap on how long we can let our episodes go so we are going to end this recording and immediately record our part two while we will be continuing this discussion and you can hear more about the types of therapy as well as some other thoughts pertaining to psychotherapy. So we'll be back momentarily. (laughs) 